Welcome to the Oxford Psychiatry Podcast Series, brought to you today by me, Daniel Morn. I'm an advanced trainee at Oxford Deanery. Today I have Professor Tom Burns with me. He leads the Social Psychiatry Group here at the Oxford University Department of Psychiatry, and I've actually been privileged to be involved with this over the past two to three years. He's here to talk to us today about his recently completed randomised controlled trial into community treatment orders. So hello, Tom. Hello, Dan. Thank you for joining us. Before we start, maybe we could go back a bit earlier and and just for those who might not be familiar with social psychiatry, could you tell us a bit about what social psychiatry is uh, or maybe what a social psychiatrist's interests are? Yes, social psychiatry is hard to define but fairly easy to recognise. Essentially, social psychiatrists are psychiatrists who are interested in people's relationships. That doesn't mean we are disinterested in the biochemistry and the physiology and the genetics of their disorder, but our primary interest is in how they react to the world around them. Um, That can be with their families, it can be with their communities, and in my case it's particularly I'm interested in how they react with us as professional caregivers. Right. Um, In your recent editorial piece in the British Journal of, of Psychiatry, you argue that social psychiatry has not had the recognition or potentially the financial support it deserves. And um, it was a very interesting piece, and I'd just maybe like to ask you a bit more about the opportunities for developing social psychiatry as a, as a uh, discipline. Yes, what we, what we wrote about in that editorial was actually slightly more, more, more um, dramatic than that. We argued two things. We thought that psychiatry was slowing down because it had begun to ignore the interpersonal dimension of our trade, our craft, if you want to call it that. Because although the last 30 years has seen an enormous emphasis on uh, pharmacology and biology, the reality is that psychiatry is a a relationship-based activity. All of our symptoms, all of our findings, have to have social meaning attached to them, to mean anything. So, for instance, if you show um, an MRI scan of somebody's brain lighting up when they're depressed, it's only meaningful if you can say they're depressed, and that actually requires a judgment about their relationship to themselves and their relationship to the world around them. Now, our thinking behind that editorial was that, for all sorts of historical reasons, we've the pendulum has swung to a very um, scientific and often a very inter, um, episodic interventionist um, approach to psychiatry. And it's yielded some interesting findings, but it hasn't really advanced the subject as much as we often think it has. And our belief was that uh, ignoring the interpersonal in psychiatry has two, two major problems with it. First of all, it misrepresents the subject, and therefore it, it, it slows down what we can do in research. If we ignore it, our research questions are going to be limited and perhaps a little bit oversimplistic. But secondly, I think it actually impacts on recruitment into our profession because if you're going to work in psychiatry you have to be interested in people people's narratives their lives their relationships if you're not interested in that the job will disappoint you and i think we've seen that uh, that uh, people who go into psychiatry thinking it's going to be just the same as neurology very quickly become disaffected and leave and similarly if we don't make clear to people that psychiatry is embedded in this uh, very rewarding interpersonal interaction, then we may fail to attract the people who would otherwise flourish in it. So that's what we were concerned to say in the editorial. 
that was more important to us, I think, than to say we need more money invested in right. uh, family interventions or, or looking at uh, um, how resilience is developed by people in, the, in their, their social networks, although we think that sort of research is important. We were more interested in, in, in identifying the degree to which ignoring the interpersonal, the social aspects of psychiatry, was skewing our understanding of it and limiting all of our activity, both research and clinical. That's fantastically interesting, actually, Tom, to hear a little bit about not only a social psychiatry perspective on, on our current position in psychiatry, but also to have the historical understanding of the development of our, our profession at mm. large. I think that's, that's very interesting and maybe gives us a good background into beginning to talk about your, uh, your recent research, your recent randomised controlled trial, which is um, looking specifically into one recent development in, in uh, mental health law that's happened recently, community treatment orders. So maybe we can get back to that topic um, and talk about that. So, what you know, let's start with talking about um, what community treatment orders are, because I'm sure there are a lot of people who are listening to this who aren't quite familiar with that term. Psychiatry had always had the provision to compel treatment on patients against their wishes, but that has always been restricted inpatient care traditionally. As psychiatry has moved out of mental hospitals, the last 30 or 40 years across the world, people have begun to recognise that if coercion and compulsion were sometimes necessary in hospital, it might be also necessary to help people comply with treatment outside hospital. So that in many legislations, in fact over 30 legislations, we've had the introduction of some form of community treatment order. Now in, in the UK it was introduced by a change in the 1983 Mental Health Act an amendment in 2007, which became active in 2008. And what that said was that patients who were currently detained in hospital against their will for treatment, uh, usually on Section 3, could, if their clinical team felt they were at great risk of rapid relapse and could not comply with treatment, could put them on what was called a community treatment order. And a community treatment order which lasts for six months in the first instance, but can be renewed, and indeed can be renewed indefinitely, uh, gave, uh, could allow you to insist on two things for the patient. One is that they should maintain contact with the team, and two, that they should agree to take their medication. And the, the power that lay behind the community treatment order was that if the patient failed to do either of these two things, they could be brought back to hospital for a review of their condition without any further uh, legalistic processes, no need to call social workers and, and, and do, do section forms. And if in those 72 hours that they were recalled, they continued to refuse to take their treatment, you could make a decision either to accept that and let them go, or if you thought they really needed compulsory treatment, you could reinstate their Section 3. So it allowed you to oblige a patient to keep contact with you and to take their treatment. What it does not allow, and in no, in no jurisdiction in the world does it allow, is for forcible treatment outside hospital. Therefore, if a patient says, no, I won't take the medication, and it's usually depo medication, long-acting antipsychotics, because this is almost exclusively restricted to psychotic patients. You can't grab hold of them in their own home and inject them, but you can have them brought back to hospital, and that may involve the police sometimes, and then in hospital, 
only if they go back onto Section 3 can force be used. So that was the legislation that got passed. Um, it had been argued about for over 20 years. Uh, it's always controversial, and rightly so, because I think that for most people, uh, compulsion in somebody who's so unwell they need 24-hour nursing has a certain natural justice to it. But there is, there's a real understandable concern that if somebody's well enough to survive outside hospital, why should they be compelled to do something else? Why can't they just make a mess of their lives just as you and I make a mess of their lives? Now, the argument against that uh, has been twofold. One is that we know, we have overwhelming evidence, that if patients, particularly with schizophrenia, stay on their maintenance medication, their lives are vastly better. They stay out of hospital, they have less stigmatising compulsory admissions, etc. So it's, there's a good reason to want to keep them on their medication. Um, so that, that was really... And, and there was also, perhaps... We as psychiatrists would not take it seriously, but the government took it seriously. And I was the psychiatric advisor to the government's committee on this, and it was quite interesting to watch their thinking. There were two other reasons they wanted a CTO. The most important was to keep patients on, the, on their medication, keep them well. The other was to restore some flagging faith in the public in mental health services, because every high-profile scandal of a patient who's known to us, known to be at risk, known to be ill but not taking their treatment makes us look really quite questionable in the public's eyes. Right. And the other reason they wanted it was it gave them a sensible monitoring of what was going on because the old system was allowing all sorts of tricks to, to compel people which weren't legally um, registered. Great, that's a really good um, comprehensive um, answer actually and it, it helps us understand what the different, uh, well, the, the, the different arguments for CTO from different from different corners of, of, of our country, both from the psychiatric um, community and the government. So, and they, when did they come into effect? Well, they came into effect in November two thousand and eight. Interestingly, they came into effect earlier in Scotland. But we'll, they were talk about England and Wales. They came into effect in November two thousand and eight, um, and we. Um, had obtained funding for our random control trial prior to them becoming active legislatively. And there's a reason for that, that I'd been down to Australia and New Zealand and it became clear to me that once CTOs are introduced, uh, psychiatrists become extremely wedded to them very quickly. And uh, to conduct a random control trial, you have to have a an acknowledged doubt about the effectiveness of the treatment. You have to have some degree of clinical equipoise, otherwise people won't uh, submit patients to the trial. And it seemed clear to me that if you leave it a year or two, we might lose that window of opportunity. So we decided to have our trial as soon after the law was passed as possible. And just uh, a, a sort of sub-question on, 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 onto your answer there. Um, have they indeed been taken up as expected by clinicians and, and been accepted in, in that way that they did in, in Victoria in Australia? Well, they have undoubtedly been taken up by clinicians, and you've done some work with, with uh, Andrew Molodinsky, which shows that uh, clinicians' attitudes to CTOs are now much more positive than they were five years ago. Not quite as positive as uh, New Zealand psychiatrists have been used them for 10 years. So attitudes change very quickly. Mm. Uh, the uptake of them has been about the level that we would expect uh, from within looking at international uh, literature. 
Uh, the government came up with a very bizarre figure of 400 a year, but that was nothing to do with their clinically predicted level. And I think actually the uptake is about what we would expect. It's not as high as Victoria. Victoria is the world leader on CTOs, and it's a sobering fact that every thousandth individual in Victoria is on a CTO. Not every thousandth patient, not even every thousandth adult, but every thousandth person. I don't think we're anywhere near that, and I hope we won't get that yes. high. Yes, that's interesting. So let's move on to talking about your particular trial. Um, so maybe you could just outline what what the the, uh, the time course was and, and the methods and, and how you went about okay. the trial. OCTED is a very standard, rigorous, random control trial. Uh, patients were randomly allocated between either going on to a CTO or not going on to a CTO. And they were followed up for a year. And before we, we started the trial, uh, we submitted our protocols to Lancet and we had a clear decision that the primary outcome would be the proportion of patients readmitted to hospital over those 12 months of follow-up. We thought that's a good outcome measure because it reflects relapse. And we were hoping to reduce relapse. And that's the explicit purpose of CTOs in nearly every jurisdiction. Uh, so it was a one-to-one -one randomized controlled trial, um, a bit of stratification for age, gender, and, and, and duration of illness, but basically uh, to be randomly allocated to either a CTO or not a CTO. Now, because of legal and ethical reasons, we had to construe that randomization as between uh, CTO and Section 17 leave. But in practice, Section 17 leave was, was, was what was being done anyway, and actually many of the people who were being considered for CTO were already on Section 17 leave. And that's confused a few people. Essentially, this is a trial of CTO versus not CTO. Um, now, we, as I say, our primary outcome was proportionally admitted, and that's because the only two previous trials also had that as their outcome measure. And it also, it's, it's what CTOs are for. And uh, we wanted the patients in the two arms as much as possible to be treated similarly. So we could test and isolate the effect of the CTO itself. So we encouraged teams to try and offer the same level of clinical support to both arms. And we encouraged them to aim for contact about once a week and at least once a fortnight. So the randomization took place. It was across 32 trusts across the south of England. Um, and it wasn't every consultant in any given trust. It was consultants who were prepared to uh, convince their teams to take part, because that was a major hurdle, and could accept that there is a legitimate uh, area of uncertainty here. So not every consultant took part. These are essentially, I would think, the slightly better educated consultants who are aware of the state of the evidence and know that we don't know. Uh, randomly allocated, and after that, we had no influence whatsoever. So it was a very nail-biting time, frankly, because we didn't know, first of all, whether people would do what they said they would do. We didn't know whether some of them would keep people on Section 17 leave for months, which they're not supposed to do, but you don't know. We didn't know whether the randomization worked perfectly, and we didn't know um, whether the treatments offered were going to be very different. And all of those could have made interpreting the results very complex. When we got the results, it seemed simpler. First of all, the randomization did work. The two groups are exactly the same. 
Secondly, people did not abuse Section 17 leave. It was a median of eight days, so as opposed to six months on a CTO. And thirdly, the, the treatment offered to two groups was fairly comparable, about two and a half to three contacts a month. So they were both all about the same. So that we knew that when we actually looked at our outcome measures, which was uh, readmission rates and time to readmission, we could draw fairly confident conclusions that any differences were due to the CTO, because everything else was about the same. Shall I tell you the results? Well, just for those people who don't know what Section 17 leave is, okay. given that it's the sort of the comparative arm, even though maybe the median duration was only eight days on Section 17 leave, it, Section 17 leave is um, a condition that you, the clinicians can um, give people leave if they're under detention uh, and the Mental Health Act for a given period of time, and it's usually used when patients are getting to the end of their inpatient stay uh, to allow them a bit of time in the community to see how it goes and that usually ends pretty briefly, uh, pretty quickly and, and they go to being uh, not under detention in, under the Mental Health Act. So that's what Section 17 leave is, that is a comparative arm. Yes, could you tell us about the results? That would be great. Well, the results were a bit of a shock, frankly. Um, our real worry was that either that, uh, you know, that we have a... Results were a bit of a shock, really. Uh, the other anxiety we had was that we get a messy result, and the difference between statistical significance and clinical significance might be quite a tricky question. But actually, in the end, there is no tricky question. Our results are that there's not a flicker of difference between the two groups. Over the course of a year, 36% of patients were readmitted in both groups. Not only were the same proportion readmitted, when we looked at the time to readmission, we did a survival curve. There's no distinction whatsoever between that. So uh, the, the rate of readmission isn't changed at all. So the number readmitted, the proportion, and the time to readmission is exactly the same in the two groups, despite six months of, of extra coercion. Now, although it isn't statistically significant, the duration of hospitalisation is a bit lower in CTO patients, and that reflects all the international uh, findings. That usually people on, on uh, CTOs stay in hospital a bit shorter. Of course, that's a measure of clinic, clinician behaviour, not of patient well-being, because presumably they've got the same illnesses, the same relapse, but clearly people feel more confident in discharge uh, early on if you're on a CTO. But in terms of the patient outcomes... Uh, the number re who relapsed, uh, the time to relapse, and indeed the clinical and social measures which we used, BPRS and GAF, not a flicker of difference. Now the trial isn't perfect. No, no RCT is ever perfect. And let me tell you what the limitations of our trial are. Although I don't think they detract from such a overwhelmingly clear result. The first is we don't know what the potential denominator was. We don't know how many patients were being considered in different trusts and who could have gone in. We can't say anything about that. Secondly, a lot of people didn't follow the the, the proposed randomization practices. About 20 to 25 percent didn't get what they should have got. Uh, about 20 percent of people randomized to CTO didn't get onto a CTO, perhaps because their condition improved while that was being considered. But more more upset, disturbingly, about 20-odd percent of people 
allocated to, to Section 17 leave were put on a CTF, despite the agreement. And there was a small number of patients, 13 overall, who never got out of hospital at all. And you always find that if you're looking at such an ill group. Luckily, that was equally distributed. So we did what's called a per-protocol analysis. You take out those who aren't treated in the way that they should have been. And that still doesn't find a difference. But it, it is an important limitation to the study. Thank you. So that's a, quite a surprising result, perhaps, um, that they were so the two groups were so so similar, um, given the addition of the CTO or the community treatment order. What, you've told us a little bit. Uh, that, well, you told us that you were shocked actually at the results initially. How have your thoughts developed about community treatment orders in, in light of these results? What do you what, what do you think about the intervention now, having mm. been the government advisor in their in their creation? Well, I, I've been an advocate of community treatment orders since the early 1990s. I was on the Royal College's first committee on it, and so I, I'm a very guilty party here. Uh, so I've always been very keen on them, and they seem to make sense to me for the reasons we discussed earlier. Um, and of course, if you do a trial like this for three or four years, you become identified with them. And I think that uh, uh, rather unconsciously we drifted to being, from being scientists to being advocates for them to some extent. So it was a shock. There's no question about that. It was a real shock. And uh, we had to take a deep breath and sit back and, uh, uh, and swallow it. I've given some thought to it. Um, the first thing to, to remind ourselves is that it shouldn't have been a shock. There have been two previous randomised control trials, and they found exactly the same. We hoped or thought it might be different here, but it wasn't. So it's actually not completely out of the blue. I have given it a lot of thought, and, and I suppose it brings us back to what we discussed at the beginning. Uh, my conclusions from it really are that it's reaffirmed my faith in the central aspect of what we do in mental health practice. Our job is developing skills in understanding and working with very disturbed and troubled individuals. And the quality of our work is based on that ability to uh, engage with, persuade, encourage, support very ill people to comply with treatment which has some real downsides for them, but we think on the, in the long term it, it, it will help them. So essentially I think I've had my belief that the, the carrot is better than the stick uh, right. reaffirmed. Yeah. I think in mental health uh, we really ought to be putting more and more of our energy into building sustainable, durable, therapeutic relationships. Do, do you think that the um, well the community treatment order could be improved by a review of the legislation? In truth, I don't think changing the legislation will make a difference. We didn't see any suggestion of any subgroup or any particular practice that made CTOs work. So I just, just genuinely think they don't work. Now, Comments on our study have come from forensic psychiatrists who say that their patients may respond better to CTOs because they're used to being told what to do, they're used to restrictions, they're used to the, the con legal consequences of not doing what they're asked. And similarly, some old age psychiatrists have commented that the, uh, the older generation are a bit more law-abiding and, and take, take the majesty of the law more seriously. And I think we have to take that seriously. We'd not, we didn't test either of those groups in our study. And I guess the uh, a contention, an ethical contention to community treatment orders is that given the 
overwhelming evidence that, that they don't necessarily make any improvements in admission rates or time to readmission, uh, that has to be held against the um, the fact that they're being uh, patients are being held un- under detention for longer periods of time. Yeah, I, th- I think our study, bear in mind our study only followed people up for 12 months. And the average time, the median time on a CTO was six months. And that means that half the patients have their CTO renewed. And my guess is that if we follow these patients up in three years' time, which we're doing, by the way, uh, we'll find that those who are on CTOs, the average time or which duration, uh, the average duration of coercion, uh, losing their, their freedom, will be perhaps even years. So, so we've underestimated the loss of individual liberty and freedom. That's very that's very helpful to just talk through the um, the pros and cons and the the, the different uh, opinions that continue despite the outcomes of your your trial or at least the the um, the primary outcome data from your trial. Let me tell you one of the most dismaying things about presenting this evidence is the number of psychiatrists who've said to me, "Very interesting results, but you know I've seen with my own eyes that CTOs work." Now, you can't see with your own eyes that a probabilistic outcome, i.e. the difference between 40% admission and 60% admission over one to two years, you cannot see that with your own eyes. And psychiatry has a really quite a bad record in continuing with treatments because we hope they work. And I've been disappointed at the reluctance to accept, disappointing that these results may be to some of us, they were to me, um, uh, a reluctance to accept that the facts are fairly clear-cut. They do not appear to achieve what they were meant to achieve. Mm. Thank you. So uh, uh, a real argument for evidence-based practice in psychiatry, given yeah. given these results, which incidentally are, were published in uh, The Lancet in March of this yeah. year. So thank you, Tom. That's been a really interesting talk, not only about um, community treatment orders, but maybe um, some more in-depth sort of uh, analysis of our profession and, and, and how we should operate as clinicians. I just want to finish with maybe a slightly lighter note. Um, uh, to, uh, I'm very aware that uh, you have published a, a book called Our Necessary Shadow um, recently, and um, I was wondering whether you could just tell us about this book briefly. Yeah, I'm delighted to tell you about the book. Rush out and buy it. Um, this is a book describing psychiatry uh, for non-psychiatrists, if you want. And uh, what got me to write this book was that I became impatient and really rather tired of many of the books which were written about psychiatry, in which straw men were put up. So um, uh, somebody like Richard Bentall would say, all psychiatrists believe that all disorders are genetic. Now, you and I know that no psychiatrist believes that. Right. Nobody believes that anorexia nervosa is genetic. Right. Nor do we believe that uh, you can't have a diagnosis that's meaningful unless you can find a physical uh, marker for it. It's absolute nonsense. So we're surrounded by a misrepresentation of our profession. So I really wanted to write a book that described our, our, our profession warts and all. Uh, and... Uh, so that people, when they read these critiques of our, our profession, could actually put it in perspective and perhaps understand why, because we operate in this very um, rapidly shifting area of social consensus, we are perhaps more vulnerable than other branches of medicine to make mistakes. And we will make mistakes, but they're often honourable mistakes and we, we should uh, uh, 
not be too ashamed of it, but we need to explain to people what we do. And there hasn't been a book that simply set out to explain psychiatry, rather than to defend one arm from the other, as it were, for a decade, no, no, for a generation, in fact. Mm. Uh, to get a proper understanding of psychiatry, I think you have to understand its history. It, it has a, a short, easily definable history. 200 years ago it started, uh, and it, but it has two aspects of the history. One is the medical model, one that's well, well known, which is the development of asylums and the classification of psychoses, uh, which has given rise to what we often think of as the medical model. But the other, equally important, uh, uh, started around the same time, was the whole issue of depth psychology and how we understood troubled individuals and what their, what their, their, their experiences meant to them and to those around them. And both those strands ha have continued to play a part in psychiatry up until our present time. So what I did in the book really was outline that history, outline how it continues to influence all the controversies that we, we struggle with in psychiatry at the moment. And I hope that it will give people who read it a respect for the difficulty of our job without pretending to gloss over the, the things that we have got wrong and we certainly have got some things quite seriously wrong. So an honest account of, yeah. of psychiatry both historically and its uh, and how we see it operating today. Uh, there's, there is a lot of anti-psychiatry around at the moment particularly with the outcome of uh, coming out of DSM-5 yes. and it's, it's I, I mean I find it personally very interesting how uh, developments in psychiatric practice bring forth this wave of anti-psychiatry and, mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it'll be very helpful to have your book there as a, as a proponent of psychiatry in its, in its current form. And so Having said that, I'm not defending DSM-5 at all. I think it's right. a disaster for our profession, as was DSM-3 and 4. I think it was a f precisely a failure to respect and grasp the process of making diagnosis because the process of making diagnosis in psychiatry always requires a degree of entering into your patient's subjective life. And DSM-3 onwards ignored that. Now the reality is that most of us still do it, thank God. But this, this attempt to suggest that it's simply like taking a picture is misleading and I think long-term potentially destructive and I think we will reject it and move back to a more commonsensical position eventually. We could go on and talk about this. Yep. It's very interesting. But, Tom, thank you very much for actually a very enlightening discussion. Um, and um, we look forward to hearing the new, uh, well, the, the, the other outcomes from Octet and its, um, its extension as well. So thank you, Tom. And I hope you tune in to uh, other podcasts found on the Oxford University Psychiatry podcast series page. Thank you. Bye-bye.